we're here to talk about the art and the science of the love affair. Um, the which is, love you know, affair. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is great, Keith, because I see this as being one of sort of Keith Witt's core teachings in a lot of ways, right? You've, you've written any number of books about it. We have a course called Loving Completely on intervallife.com that people should check out where you really, you know, get into a lot of this. But I'm really excited for today's sermon, <laughs> if you will. Hallelujah, <laughs> brothers and sisters. <laughs> well, let's dive into it. So this was coming up with a number of couples the last few months. So it got me thinking about it. You know, it, when you're a therapist, sometimes you'll have like little waves of issues that come through. And intimate relationships are important to everybody, whether you're in one or not. And what constitutes one, and this comes from our instinct to pair bond, is a friendship, a love affair, and problem solving. These are the three foundations of an intimate relationship. And they're all super important. Now, there's some problems <laughs> that arise out of all this. One problem is that there's been lots of permission in the culture the last 50 years to teach kids and adolescents about how to have a good friendship, about how to be respectful and how to listen and all that other stuff. Not that it, it takes as much. One study showed that in 20 conversations, people felt deeply heard 5% of the time. So we're not real good at it, but you know, at least we're, we're teaching it. And it's really fine to teach kids how to problem solve. You know, you can teach kids how to mediate, you can teach kids how to collaborate and cooperate, that kind of stuff. But it's forbidden or illegal to teach kids how to have a great love affair um, before they're 18. So we're just starting off with two strikes against us when we come developmentally to this. And so it's not surprising that often the love affair is the canary in the coal mine. And people will come in and go, yeah, you know, it's, sex isn't working. The most common complaint is sexual indifference. The most common complaint is brought to sex therapists. And usually when people come in and they say sex isn't working, they're not intentional. They, what they've been is they've been conditioned by the culture and by their family to be unconscious and dissociated around their sexuality in general. Okay? So people will come in and, and the canary in the coal mine says sex isn't working. Okay? Now, just like the canary in the coal mine, if the canary starts getting sick in the coal mine, you don't go and say, well, the solution to this is we should give the, the canary some vitamins and steroids and then the, the coal mine will be fine again. Okay? Or we should get another canary that works better. Okay? Now, that, that's not how the canary in the coal mine works. The canary in the coal mine is there's something around the, the, the coal mine that's making the canary sick. And of course, usually when people come in and their sexual problems, they have some problems with their friendship and with problem solving also, or maybe problems with their own history and so on. Now, our path as human beings is to integrate all these things so they can all make sense in a happy life and a happy relationship. But this requires consciousness. Hmm. And also any relationship that lasts longer than a couple of weeks is going to have some kind of problem with the love affair. And when that happens, it will require intention. Okay? Somebody has to say, I have an intent to have better sex, to make our love affair better. Somebody. Okay? And often, well, I, I wouldn't say often, sometimes 
They go, well, let's go to somebody who knows what they're doing and ask them about it. You know, so they call Keith, right? So they come in with Keith and they still don't have an intentional love affair. They just have an intent to have better sex. And it's not an intentional love affair because when they come in, both of them are very firmly convinced that they know the problem. And the problem is that this other guy is just not doing the right things. And if they did, then sex would be great. Okay. And there's a corollary to that. Sometimes they're not doing the right things and I'm broken. Okay. And I can't help being broken and I can't help them doing the right things. So if, if that changed, if I wasn't broken and if they were doing the right thing, sex would be great. And my job as a therapist is, is to convince them that they're both right. Okay. That, yeah, all that stuff that you just said is right, right, but also all the stuff that your partner just said is right. And I'm doing that to, to get them to make this huge shift that I think is under is underemphasized in the literature of going from being non-intentional not an intentional love affair is we're both willing to receive influence and be different in the interest of us having a better love affair. Okay, to go from non-intentional to intentional. Now, often you got to go through the friendship and through problem solving to get there, which is fine. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have two people willing to receive influence and change, it's not going to get better indefinitely. You can have therapeutic relief in therapy, which is fine if people want it. But you don't get therapeutic change. You know, they might feel better and then, then come back in a few months with the same problem. Keith, you know, it's got me thinking as you're talking how the intentional love affair, you know, we use that word intentional, which we often correlate as, you know, sort of an upper left quadrant kind of Absolutely. quality. Right. But it's not like it just remains in the upper left quadrant. I mean, you know, in the upper left, of course, this is where we cultivate sort of that mindset of returning to love over and over again. This is where we set the intention to have, you know, greater intimacy, greater contact with our with our partners. But this is sort of where it begins and not where it ends in a lot of ways, right? Because then the lower left, of course, is the nexus of the relationship itself. This is the intimacy that you guys are trying to cultivate together. The sense of connection, the communication that is so necessary. All of that can be found in the lower left quadrant. And the lower right quadrant, we probably want to take a look at sort of the, you know, the conditions and circumstances that are surrounding and, and sometimes limiting the kinds of intimacy that people can can experience together. Often, often limiting. Yeah, exactly. And, and here we're really talking about, among others, space and time, right? I mean, space in terms of proximity to each other you can either have too much proximity right mm -hmm. two people working from home that are in each other's face all the time you know it can be difficult to sustain a sense of healthy polarity when when that's the case right. Right? i think that's the whole kind of mating and in, in captivity angle in a certain kind of way some of this kind of neutralizes us through familiarity and through exposure then of course you have the opposite problem is people with opposite schedules who don't see enough of each other and when they do see each other there's you know other obligations they have to take care of or household chores or child raising or what have you that can be a, a stress which of course is, is a time element so we've got space and we've got time one study in LA showed that two people with kids who were working spent 17 minutes a week talking to each other about just stuff other than logistics Wow. Talk about time. I just wanted to throw that into the lower right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's critical. And then any number of other things. I mean, the technological platforms that we're surrounded by. I mean, it is different maintaining a relationship in the age of Tinder, right? 
than it is, you know, back in the day when it took more work to, to meet possible sexual partners, for example. But there's an entire platform for cheating, right? Ashley Madison. Uh, Ashley Madison. Life is short. Why not have That's it? Right. That's right. So, I mean, all of this, I think, impinges on us from the lower right quadrant in terms of how we sustain and maintain our relationships together. And yeah. then, of course, in the upper right, you've got things like individual practices that maybe people need to be doing in order to increase their capacity for intimacy in the first place, right? Or, you know, even something as, as basic as like physical health. I mean, really committing to your own physical health. This was one of the five gold stars in the Loving Completely course. That's true. That's right. Emotional right? physical health. So we're seeing how integral really, really sort of opens the box here when it comes to these intimate relationships, which I think is refreshing because so many of the sort of methodologies and practices that you were pointing to earlier, I think one thing that they often have in common is they're presented as if they are sort of one size fits all solutions for all yeah, relationships everywhere. You That's know, we, think, we human, you know, in the upper right, we also have the drives, you know, our genetic, genetic drives. And, and then we have who we are. Okay. Right who we are and sexually humans take the drives and turn them into art okay so everybody has basically their own sexuality that's unique i've never met any two people with the same sexuality and we don't decide as much to, to be who we are sexually as we discover who we are right. another factor that I think we really want to pay close attention to in the lower right quadrant, which is the prevalence, the sort of ubiquitous prevalence of pornography oh, yeah. and its effects. And, you know, I don't think either of us are going to sit here and moralize about pornography. I think like anything else, you know, there's healthy ways to use pornography. There's some unhealthy ways. There's some healthy aspects to making pornography. There's a lot of, for example, amateur porn where couples is sort of exploring this as a kink and it's fully consensual and, and all that. And it can yeah, be exciting. Yeah, sex. Can, can invigorate the relationship and so forth. That's right. And then, of course, there was just horribly exploitative porn that really borders on, you know, sex slavery in a certain kind of way. And, yeah. you know, it's there, there's a lot of that out there. So there's a lot of moral issues that come with it. But I'm not so interested in the moral issues as much as I'm interested in the types of conditioning that dependence on pornography can create in people. I remember I remember a Chris Rock stand-up show when he, and he was talking about his relationship with porn and he was basically saying, you know, I was using it so much I was basically becoming sexually autistic. Yeah, yeah. Right? He the, talked about his porn game. His, that's right. To the point where, you know, it's a classic thing. You've got 50 tabs open and you're searching for that one scene that is actually going to get you off. And you, over time, you get sort of dependent on finding that one scene. And it's a scene that you're never going to reenact in a natural, you know, physical relationship with people. You're just looking for that one thing that sort of pokes through all that habituation that you've already formed around all the other scenes that are sort of open on your tabs. And that can be, I think, especially for men, which isn't to say women don't use porn and can't become porn addicts, they absolutely can. But speaking as a man, I can definitely see how that, you know, really can be damaging to an intimate relationship. I think the idea, Keith, is we want to take porn out of the shadows, right? Because we can yeah. see, if we want to have a healthy relationship, we need to be able to acknowledge that when it comes to things like porn, there is a really, you know, good likelihood of either of two things happening, either addiction 
or allergy. For allergy, oh. allergies are interesting, right? Because there's another thing where Pornhub, for example, often releases sort of its studies and uh, of, of, for example, who consumes what kind of porn in what regions of the world. And surprise, surprise, the number one consumers of, for example, transgender porn are southern states where they're, you know, not so kind to transgender people. So we can see that porn is often a carrier wave for all sorts of addictions and for allergies. And this, I think, it's really, again, troublesome for men in particular because there's just not a whole lot of, I think, training in our culture in terms of how to manage pornography, right? Yeah. I don't think a lot of men are, are, are taught that. And, and so men can easily fall into either the addictions or the allergies. The other yeah. danger of porn, I think, because you actually sort of brought us there when you were talking about states of consciousness, because mm -hmm. I think this is the other piece that we really want to recognize that when it comes to an intentional love affair, an intentional love affair, you know, sort of a, a healthy sex life, healthy intimacy, healthy connection. This isn't just gross body stuff. I mean, it is gross body stuff, and that's foundational in so many, I think, critical ways, but it's obviously not just that, right? We can talk about intimacy in terms of the gross bodies, right? We can talk about intimacy in terms of subtle bodies, sharing dreams, sharing emotional connections, sharing sort of that imaginal space together within which the relationship unfolds and develops and emerges and so forth, right? We can even talk about a causal kind of relationship that we have in each other where, where we have achieved a, a type of sort of equanimity and sort of a peacefulness with each other and an ease with each other. And I think it takes, just like meditation, it takes a considerable amount of practice, I think, to sort of achieve that. And then we can talk about witness states, right? Which I think Tantra actually kind of really gets us into sort of being able to witness the different kinds of energies that are sort of emerging erotically or, you know, I think the idea with Tantra is everything is sort of erotic in a, in once you sort of get to that sort of oh, station, yeah. right? Everything is erotic. A bird flying through your awareness is sort of an erotic act in, in a certain sense. Yeah, um, nature mysticism. Nature mysticism yeah, totally. is... You know, you're one with nature, and that's Eros. It's happening all the time. Uh, that's right. And, the, and the, simply the ability to observe each other without judgment or without, you know what I mean? Without sort of that graspiness that I think is often so associated with, with gross and subtle stages. Well, and also, A lot of that goes away with witness. Of course, we finally arrive at what I think oftentimes people find to be the most fulfilling kind of intimacy which is sort of this almost non-dual sort of mutual experience where subject and object kind of collapse together, where, uh -huh. where two lovers experience themselves as one, right? And it's a beautiful, gorgeous experience that is almost impossible to put into words. It's one of those, but you know it when you feel it, right? And I think yeah. a lot of people watching this conversation have probably had those kinds of at least momentary sort of peak experiences of non-dual, just sort of seamlessness between mm -hmm. two bodies, right? Between two gross bodies, two subtle bodies, two causal bodies, etc. Experience through the same identical sort of singular witness that's sort of looking at each other through each other's eyes. So we have these, these multiple different sort of strata of intimacy that are available to us, gross, subtle, causal, witness, non-dual. Now, to bring it back to porn, guess how many of those porn role models for us? Only one, right? Only one. 
at, at least when it comes to like porn hub type porn now we could make the argument that romance novels are actually emphasizing maybe subtle body you know type of yeah they are intimacy and et that's right 100 percent and that's an interesting, I think, way to look at it. But when we're talking about like visual porn videos, right, that a lot of kids, I think, are now is sort of becoming a sex education in, in certain ways for a lot oh, of absolutely. kids today in today's absolutely. world, right? It is role modeling only gross, only gross body types of intimacy, types of satisfaction, types of fulfillment. And therefore, it's no wonder why so many people go through their lives feeling unfulfilled. Because well, these other strata have not been role modeled for them. <laughs>